Today's episode is brought to you by Merge Records, home to many great bands, including The Magnetic Fields, Waxahachie, Neutral Milk Hotel, and Destroyer, which is, I've seen Destroyer five times in concert. It is one of my favorite bands of all time, led by Dan Behar, and Merge just released two early Destroyer albums on colored vinyl. City of Daughters is 20 years old this year and has never been available on vinyl in the U.S. until now, and the original Thief vinyl has long evaded Destroyer Completus, and I know because I am one, I'm going to get it. Also, last year, Destroyer released his latest album. It's called Ken. It landed on several top 20 year-end lists. If you read about music, you probably know it. You can pick up those albums and much more at MergeRecords.com. And hey, guess what? You can support this podcast and yourself by getting 20% off any order using coupon code CRACKED. As always, domestic shipping is free. Isn't that great? Again, go to MergeRecords.com and enter CRACKED at checkout to get 20% off your purchase. Merge Records, home of independent music since 1989. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracks Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also here to tell you your online dating profile is going A-OK. You know what? You're nailing it. No matter who you are, your success rate and your experiences on it and everything else is not the worst experience of all time for a user there. I know that for a fact because you're not Christopher Cantwell. Here's what the online dating website OkCupid posted on their widely read company blog for the whole world to see on August 18th of 2017. Also, I know I just said a company blog is widely read, but like their blog sparked an entire book called Dataclism by site founder Christian Rudder. We've had him on the show in the past. It's actually like kind of a place people talk about what's going on in online dating. Anyway, here is the title of OkCupid's post from that date. Quote, OkCupid has zero tolerance for racism. And then here's the subheadline, quote, our easy decision to ban white supremacist Christopher Cantwell. And, quote, they didn't just do that fancy thing of happening to make a rule, like, without naming the reason for it. They explicitly told the world that Christopher Cantwell is a racist and he does not deserve to get to use OkCupid to find love. I find it astonishing that a website can just do that. I also don't think I find it to be wrong. That was probably a good thing they did. For one thing, OkCupid is a private company. They can do what they want with their service. For another thing, the white nationalism in America today, like I don't have to get way into it, right? It's fundamentally illogical, fundamentally hateful. We got into it a lot on a recent episode with Jason Pargin, and OkCupid makes a point of saying why in the post. They say, quote, All people are created equal with inalienable rights. This human truth was self-evident when the U.S. Constitution was written. It remains so today. Supremacist ideologies are in direct conflict with these simple and obvious truths. They conflict with core human values everyone has the right to. End quote. I agree. And here's another reason I'm on board with them kicking Christopher Cantwell off OkCupid. Remember when I said they posted this on August 18th, 2017? As we'll discuss today, that was days after the events in Charlottesville, Virginia, where white nationalists murdered a counter-protester, injured dozens of others, and incidentally got two state troopers killed when the trooper's helicopter crashed trying to get there. You know, I'm pretty sure most websites already have some kind of rule on the books or legal leeway to kick out users who are, for practical purposes, like terrorists, kind of. Like, it's not good. And that's how it works. All that said, today's episode is about 
freedom and your freedom and what can happen to it online very easily and what that means. We also have a lot of fun, uh, mainly because my guest today is just like this well of empathy. I am so excited to be joined by Sam Sanders of National Public Radio. You may know him from his fantastic work as a reporter before, during, and after the 2016 campaign. And I hope you know him from his ongoing podcast. It's called It's Been a Minute, and it's one of the most human shows I hear in my week. I cannot recommend it enough. And our topic on this show this week is what the rise of the alt-right means for your internet freedom. Because as you're about to hear, Sam directed his empathy towards someone who has a job that I think only a maniac would want, towards someone who may very well be a maniac, and yet this maniac said something worth turning over in your head because you live in 2018. Or a future year. Maybe you live in the future and you're listening to this. Thank you. Anyway, please sit back. Or look at, like, the flying cars or whatever. I'm still hung up on this thing where you might be in the future. Are you wearing, like, a visor that does laser beams? What's going on? Either way, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Sam Sanders. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time and doing this. Happy to do it. Yeah, you're, uh, I'm sure, very busy with your show, It's Been a Minute, which is fantastic. People thank should hear you. it. And you also, uh, I'm sure many people know you from your reporting for NPR during the election and elsewhere. Yeah. And as we talked before this, you got into a kind of subculture online that uh, I'm curious which thing you were doing that led you into it. Yeah. Yeah. So during the campaign, I did a good amount of reporting on the Internet and politics. And over the course of the election cycle, I kind of became obsessed with the alt-right and what they were doing and what they were about. Uh, So much so that I actually ended up doing a story just after the election. Uh, It was a a three-and-a-half-minute obituary on Pepe the Frog, this uh, cartoon character that had become a symbol (laughs) of the alt-right. I I call the story an obituary because the guy that made Pepe at first, he didn't make him to be a symbol of hate or the alt-right. He just made a cartoon frog. The alt-right co-opted it. And ultimately, the guy that made the frog, Pepe, said, it's over, it's done, it's dead. And I did a, <laughs> an obit for, like, the loss of Pepe. Because I think in the cartoon, he's, like, just using the bathroom, something like yeah. that, and enjoying how it feels. It feels and then good, it's man. become that's a whole just, different yeah, hate a whole, thing. Exactly. <laughs> so that's how into the alt-right I was. I was right. just, as someone who doesn't like pretty much anything that they stand for, you know, as a black man, I still was obsessed with like their methods because they're extremely effective. They, over the course of the election, made all of us know who they are. It was very kind of you to qualify that with pretty much anything they stand for. (laughs) That was very charitable to them. Yeah, Uh, yeah, totally, (laughs) totally. Yeah. And so you you dug into these people who got their president elected and are now... Yeah, or uh, they claim as their president, right? right. And there there have been times where Trump and his team have denounced certain parts of the alt-right. But yeah, a lot of the alt-right says, this is our guy. He's in office. Right. So clearly, I didn't stop having interest in the alt-right after Trump won. In fact, my interest probably even intensified. Yeah. And so they've reacted uh, in certain ways to kind of post-election life. Yeah. Like, they're still around, right? <laughs> yeah. And so with the show I have now, it's been a minute. We uh, we do two episodes a week of the podcast. The Friday episodes are kind of a roundup of the news of the week. But the Tuesdays are just long-form conversations. So we right. get to pick who I want to interview. And so one week a few months ago, I told the production team, I was like, you know what we should do? We should check in on the alt-right. And they were like, what do you mean? I was like, 
check in on them. See what's going on. I feel like yeah. I haven't heard a lot from them since Donald Trump won. <laughs> and they were like, are you sure you want to do that? And I said, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah. I just wanted to do it. Uh, was this pre or post the Charlottesville uh, attack? This was post Charlottesville. This was yeah. like early 2018. Oh, so right. a lot had gone down. Trump had been in office for a while. Right. And I said, I just think we need to check in with the alt-right because I feel like before the election, all you could talk about or see in the news was the alt-right this, the alt-right that. And now I was like, where are they? So we dug around for a little bit and we found uh, the CEO of a company called Gab.ai. And he talked with me. First things first, give me your full name yes. and your title. Yes. Uh, my name is Utsev Sanduja. I'm the uh, Chief Operating Officer and Global Affairs Director of Gab.ai. So Utsav is COO of Gab.ai. And I should right. explain what Gab.ai is. They're basically an alternative to Facebook and Twitter. As you know, during the campaign cycle, after the election, these companies tried to do a better job of getting the alt-right and some of that rhetoric off of their platforms. And as more and more profiles and people that fit that description were booted off, some of these alternatives sprung up. So Gab.ai was one of the alternatives. Uh, they have about 430,000 users that aren't that big, but they're one right. of many alternative sites that the alt-right has found in the last few months or years. There's even like an alternative Airbnb. Like for That's racists. amazing. I know, right? It's crazy. <laughs> for comparison, Twitter has a user base of about 68 million people. Yeah. So Gab is less than 1% of this yes. uh, set of people. Yes. Yeah. And there's a reason they're so small. We'll get to it in a little bit. But yeah. I want to allow Utsav to describe the company himself. Right. One of their many C-level executives yes. over at Gab. Gab is a microblogging social media site that uh, utilizes 300 characters uh, for the purposes of... of uh, disseminating and spreading uh, thoughts and opinions and content of users around the world. Essentially, Gab is a, a very free-flowing uh, social media platform that uh, allows people to speak freely without censorship, without restrictions. It's a very nice way of saying that this site is one of the new havens for the alt-right, and it's full of what <laughs> most of us deem hate speech. <laughs> I joined Gab.ai to prepare for the interview. It's vile. Yeah. It's vile. Did you take any like personal mental health steps in the process <laughs> of, I'm going to be reading a lot of it? Because we on, on Cracked, we've tried to cover and, and be on top of some of these movements. And mm -hmm. my colleague, Jason Parchin in particular, is like really trying to zero in on like, how do these work? How do they recruit people? And like, I feel like I need a shower after a lot you of the time. Do. <laughs> it's just really nasty. And yeah. I think that most people who listened to your podcast or mine that went on that site, they would be disgusted and perhaps scared about the future of America, but they're there, right? Yeah. And so this was one of these havens for the alt-right. And I wanted to say, well, you know what? You're incendiary, but I want to see what's going on with you. We should just talk. And I tried to talk with him about a lot of things. And there was some meat in the conversation. Like he told me that Gab.ai, they wanted to have an app as well in the same way that there's a Twitter app and a Facebook app. Right. But as soon as they made their apps, they were booted off Apple's app store. They were booted off the Google Android app store. And they, in fact, sued Google because of it. They said, this is not fair. You got to let us have the same shake all the other companies do. 
they dropped the case because they quickly figured out that Google's a private company. <laughs> they can do what they want. <laughs> right. And they have their own terms of service. And so while I wanted to have a conversation about that, things just went off the rails. I think what happens, and you probably know this, is when you talk with people of that fringe, of the alt-right, a lot of their goal is to say things that are as incendiary as possible or to make arguments that aren't even at all logical just to prove that they can make them. Yeah, they do it on television. Yeah. 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 And so I thought, well, I can I can figure this out. I can crack that code. I can get a good interview out of this guy. And actually, I could not. Oh, um, no. <laughs> our conversation happened just a few days after the shooting at Parkland High School in Florida where, gosh, I forget how many students were killed. Mm-hmm. A lot. More than one. More so. than one. <laughs> and when we got to talking about Parkland, things went off the rails. I hear you saying that, but I'm scrolling now through the Florida school shooting mm-hmm. tab on gab.ai, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and there are lots of people on your site mm-hmm. saying that the Florida shooting is a hoax and saying that the children that went to that school who are now protesting mm-hmm. are rigged and, and fixed. How do you justify something that is blatantly false? And if you know it's false and it's false, why don't you just take it down? Because we start to get in the notion of what is true and what is false. Are, would you? So are you saying that you're not sure if the Florida shooting was a hoax or not? Don't put words in my mouth. But what are you saying say about that. the Florida shooting you, then? You, you see, I'm going... T- Absolutely. Come on. Are you kidding me? Absolutely what? Absolutely this happened. Absolutely this is a tragedy. Okay, so but but My but, but you're also saying you're comfortable having people saying it didn't happen I, and it was a hoax? I am I am just as much comfortable with people saying the moon landing didn't happen and people saying that Elvis was abducted by space aliens. Yeah, totally similar <laughs> yeah. situations. Day yeah. after a shooting versus yeah. claiming the moon landings were on a soundstage. Yeah. Sure. So exactly the same. That was pretty much the tenor of our 45-minute <laughs> conversation. In the interview. 45 minutes. I wanted to try. You, you put the work try. in, man. I did. Thank and you. I prepped for the interview, too. <laughs> but we leave the booth and everyone's like, kill it dead. This will never see air. It's not going to go anywhere. It's just, it, it, it's not suitable for our audience. Yeah, well, I, NPR has higher standards than like most of television. <laughs> they, we, I was talking with Jason Parjun, I mentioned on a previous episode, and we were both basically saying that we find that we don't want anyone to be censored. And also, anytime these all right people are on television, we like clench up because we have a real strong sense that the host is not going to push on them. Yeah. Like Bill Maher is just going to be like, that's very funny, Milo. You have a fun fashion. You exactly. know, it's not going like, to well, push on them at all. And if you push. The folks that are the spokespeople of the alt-right, they're so good at taking an argument and a conversation wherever they want to go. And right. you aren't in charge when you talk with them. You're not. They're in charge. <laughs> right. you know? So all that to say, the conversation went nowhere. And I said, all right, let's just leave it alone. But one thing that I could not get out of my head from our conversation was this idea that it is unfair for a company like Google to not host or allow groups like Gab. What does that mean? And do the Utsavs of the world, do the Gab.AIs of the world have a point? Right. Should they be on the internet at all? Yeah. If they would like to be. Exactly. Because according to most of our amendments, I guess they should. Well, this is the thing. I started digging and it turns out it is actually a lot more complicated. And when you dig into this Google Gab situation and other stuff, there are some really big questions about 
public spaces and private ownership and what the First Amendment means and who it applies to. And I want to kind of talk about some of that stuff and then ultimately tell you how I ended up actually agreeing with Utsav. (laughs) (laughs) This is a big day for Utsav. This is a big day. Utsav, I hope you're listening. The Gab Campus in Northern California, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So to get to where I'm going, we have to start with Charlottesville. Yeah. Uh, this was the alt-right gathering in Charlottesville, Virginia, at the University of Virginia in August of last year, 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the largest alt-right gathering in recent history, and it turned violent. Uh, a counter-protester, Heather Heyer, was killed there when a pickup truck ran her over. Right. And uh, this was kind of a breaking point and a focal point in how the Internet's gatekeepers uh, treat the alt-right. So right. I called up April Glazer. She writes for Slate about technology. She covered all this stuff. I was like, tell me what happened with this. It actually started before Charlottesville, right? Like right before Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody had tipped Airbnb off to uh, the fact that folks on the Daily Stormer, which was a website that was largely responsible for organizing the Unite the Right rally, were planning uh, to rent out houses on Airbnb in Charlottesville to ha- you know have big after parties. And they were calling it like, we're going to get like the Nazi Uber, they called it, oh, and, uh, and like bus people out to these houses and it'll be great. And when Airbnb found that out, they shut those accounts down, they, disab- they uh, canceled the bookings. You know, that pissed the alt-right off. But after that, you know, Facebook started shutting down accounts that were also associated with uh, organizing the Unite the Right rally. And then once the rally happened and it became clear that these folks were wielding weapons and that even, you know, a a woman died, uh, you know, in the midst of the event, that set off a whole flood of, of other account shutdowns. So at face value, that makes sense. We know that companies like Airbnb and Facebook and Twitter and Google can kick people off if they want. But the more that we talked, the more I realized there are a lot more companies that have the power to kick the alt-right off the internet than I even knew. Some of the companies that got involved in this pattern after Charlottesville were companies that I had never heard of. When it, it seems particularly acute when it's something like Airbnb, where because these guys they were treat they were treating this hateful march as if it was some kind of comic con or something oh, where yeah. they're all going to hang out and you need to get <laughs> rooms in party. advance, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so they were about to show up and suddenly didn't have a place to sleep because the guy who runs Airbnb decided so they were no. hateful. Yeah, yeah. And like that's a public facing company that we can name. Yeah, there are other companies that can virtually do the same thing that I had never heard of. For example, uh, Cloudflare uh, stopped protecting the Daily Storm or dropped them as a client after the the uh, Unite the Right rally. And that was, uh, you know, very unusual for them. So I was like, one, one what's Cloudflare? But I guess right. to even step back before that... We should say the Daily Stormer is the premier, or was the premier, neo-Nazi alt-right KKK website. It was this right. was the home of white supremacy on the internet. Uh, and Lots of 1940s imagery. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so this company Cloudflare was able to take them offline, basically. And I was like, April, what is Cloudflare? <laughs> Cloudflare uh, provides security for websites. So let's say if you know. 
a lot of people are trying to shut down a website by by putting so much traffic on it that nobody else can access it because it overloads the servers. You know, Cloudflare is, uh, provides technology that that prevents that. They stop providing that security for the Daily Stormer. So they stop providing security for the, for the Daily Stormer, and all of a sudden they have to go offline because they've just been attacked on all ends, and they end up finding some roundabout way to get back on, like literally through the Russians. But I was just like, wow, this company that I've never heard of yeah. basically has the power by denying security services to take an entire website off the Internet. That feels weird, even if it is the KKK, right? <laughs> and so I was just more intrigued, and I was like, I need to ask somebody about like what all of this means and whether I, whether or not I'm justified in feeling queasy about this. Right. You know? Because especially these companies, even if we know what the company is, like, I feel like most people couldn't name Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky off the top of their head. <laughs> exactly. Or whoever runs Cloudflare off exactly. the top of their head. Who the hell runs Cloudflare? <laughs> so I called up Danielle Citron. She is a professor of law at the University of Maryland at the Carey School of Law. She works on privacy and free speech issues. And I was like, please explain to me. I guess I don't know who actually owns all of the Internet. So, so often we think of the Internet as a sort of open public square where anyone can talk uh, and get the audience that we wish. But that's just a myth. Um, the Internet is um, it's a human invention, and there are countless companies that control our ability to speak and then also to be heard. Um, and so the Internet, we might think of as a series of stacks, um, companies, private companies that control every layer of that stack, help ensure that we not only can get on the Internet, so we think of Internet service providers and broadband companies, but when we're surfing the web, there are all these companies that are involved, including our browsers, search engines, and then, of course, as we use social media companies, those are companies. So she's basically saying at so many more inflection points than we know, private ownership of the Internet can just take you offline. Your server yeah. can take you offline. Your browser can take you offline. The search engine can basically remove you from search. Like, There's all these pressure points where you can just be removed, be disappeared by these dudes. It's always dudes. <laughs> we don't know who they are. Unfortunately, right? Yeah. We don't know who they are. <laughs> And internet freedom being a mythological. It's like, a myth. It, it fe it's feels very real in front of me what exactly. I'm, say, listening to a podcast. Exactly. You know, companies that we think of at the content layer, Facebook, Twitter, if you're kicked off Facebook, there are other, you know, social media platforms for you to discover and engage with. But there are some layers of the digital infrastructure that if the companies decide you don't, you're not, you don't belong online, you literally will not be accessed. So Cloudflare and other security services, if they refuse to provide you services, hackers can get at your site and you will not be seen on the Internet. Same is true with domain name services. So if we can't convert the ones and zeros of your IP address, your web address, to what that's in a way that's readable and people can figure out where you are, people can't find you. Um, same with search engines. If search engines like Google, Bing, um, Yahoo, if they don't index your site, it's really difficult to find you. Or if your site is not prominent in a search of the name of your website, you won't be found. And so depending on you know, what company we're talking about, it could be that you are just invisible 
or you're never seen online. That's sad. <laughs> oh, no. It's a bit. So these <laughs> private companies, many of which we don't even know who they are or what they do, they can control what is ostensibly the public square. The internet, for all intents and purposes in, in this day and age, is the public square. Yeah. And so the big question that comes out of all of this is, what do you do when the virtual public square is controlled by private companies? Yeah, because I suppose that public square metaphor seems like a good one, because if we walk into Boston Common or something, there are United States laws about you yeah. can't kill Coors Light can't kick you, you can't, out. Right. You know, but like, like <laughs> exactly. But on yeah. the Internet, you know, that kind of thing can happen. Yeah, because the square was I clicked through a thing that Apple or Facebook put in front of me and did not read it. Exactly. And now I've like, how much have we agreed to in terms of how we behave on the internet without thinking about it. All it seems it. like it's all very reasonable, but also a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Like we have said yes to this every step of the way Yeah, as a society, right? We, we have said yes to private ownership of our public square. And we won't even just say yes to that. We say we're going to give you our data too, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> so, well, and, it, and it also seems like it's pretty preemptively stopping a lot of these white nationalists, right? Like that, that yeah. Airbnb case in Charlottesville. Yeah. I think their official reasoning for kicking them out was that white nationalists were violating the pre-established community guidelines yeah. of Airbnb. Which you like, all click yes on when you sign up for Airbnb. Right. Which I have, never I think, read. never seen. Yeah, uh, exactly. But I have uh, agreed to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was a line in there, I guess, somewhere that said, don't be a racist. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Which was a lot of foresight, but yeah, good for them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyways, talking with this lawyer, Danielle Citrin, there is this big question about whether or not the law has actually kept up with this new reality. If the new reality is the public square is owned by private hands, do things like the First Amendment, does it keep up? Yeah. You know, because we've so often thought of laws about privacy and speech and expression being applied through the state, being applied through public entities. It's not so much the case when right. the entities are private. So much of the power we're talking about, it's not state censorship, Right. The First Amendment is almost marginal. What matters more are terms of service, believe it or not. Like companies, their private policies have much more power than even the First Amendment, right? They decide who gets heard, who gets read, the companies. And so whereas we once thought of a state actor as being in charge of as the censor, you know, that we, we worry about and that the First Amendment protects against, First Amendment has no application to private companies. That's kind of creepy. Yeah, I thought that amendment was comprehensive. Exactly. Uh, not so oh, much. no. <laughs> not so much. And so, like, now you have this situation where the law is superseded by whatever guidelines Mark Zuckerberg wants to put out on Facebook. Sure, yeah. And even if the people that are victimized by that are gab.ai and the alt-right and the Daily Stormer and quote-unquote hate speech – we should still be given pause when that happens, right? Yeah, sure, yeah. You know? And so, like, the question is, what do you do then if this is the situation? Like, how do you apply some of these First Amendment principles to private companies? Um, how do you apply any kind of regulation from a government to a private company? Yeah, and it's also, it's very thorny, and it's also very modern, and it's, now I'm thinking in my head, like, 
my president is a septuagenarian and my U.S. senator is an octogenarian. And not not to be ageist, but I could use like web savvy people making these laws, yeah. please, because like, well, it's a whole different thing. Exactly. I'm sure you saw that uh, those two days when Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook went to Capitol Hill to testify and some of the questions the senators <laughs> and House members asked him proved that they had never used Facebook. <laughs> Yeah, it was years ago, but I think it was the Alaska senator, Ted Stevens, said that the internet was a series of tubes. And then it was sort of, uh, everyone laughed and ha 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 ha. But if I was a legislator, I would be like, I don't want to be Ted Stevens. I'm going to know everything. I'm going to figure this out. Like that was a warning. Exactly. They haven't, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so now this big question is like, how do we regulate private companies that control the public square and what kind of regulation do we want? Yeah. Turns out the kind of regulation that people want now on these private companies is not the guarantee of free speech for the gap at AIs. It's not the guarantee of web hosting for sites like like the Daily Stormer. What people really want right now is for the government to make these companies keep those folks offline. Really? We have seen in Europe, uh, the EU just put into effect what's called the GDPR, the General Data Privacy Regulations. I received one billion emails about it. Yes. I know what's happening. Exactly. (laughs) So basically it says, one, uh, these companies like Facebook and Twitter have to get your permission before they use your data. They got to tell you where it's going. They got to tell you if your data is compromised. But there's also stricter regulation now over the types of speech allowed on these platforms. Mm -hmm. A lot of hate speech uh, the EU was cracking down on saying, Facebook, Twitter, you got to take it off. So my question going into this initially was, how do we make sure that the public square owned by private hands stays totally fair and open? But in fact, most governments, if they want to do anything to regulate these private owners of the internet, they want to allow them the ability to make it more closed. Yeah, because we're already in a situation where I use Twitter quite a bit and I know people who are changing their location to be somewhere in Germany or in France because in those two countries, the government takes down any tweets that are white nationalist, yeah. white supremacist hate speech yeah. because of existing laws about, you know, having gone through World War II and yeah, so on. But that you get a different and more closed, maybe in a good way, version of the Internet if you live there. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, some might say that there is... There is good to be had by having a nicer internet. Um, there is this very obscure Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act here in America that um, wants to – well, one, that whole act was meant to like make sure the communication stayed decent, hence the name. But okay. they also wanted to make sure that these companies – didn't have to shoulder the burden of some of these hard choices that you face, right? So Mm -hmm. Section 230 says, internet services are not to be construed as publishers. Basically, they're not legal or liable. Sorry. Basically, they're not liable for for what third parties say on their services. So Facebook isn't legally liable if Joe Blow calls me the N-word on Facebook in a post. It's not Facebook's problem to solve. They can solve it if they want to, but I can't sue Facebook and get money out of that, if that right. makes sense. It's Joe. Yeah, yeah. it's Joe. Joe <laughs> did it. And so you have this situation where there's a patchwork of regulation based on where you are of these gatekeepers of the internet. So the EU is saying, we're going to crack down on speech. And America is either saying, we don't know how to regulate it, we don't want to, or Facebook, do what you want. 
And like no one is in charge except for these private companies ultimately. Because when you end right. up in that kind of situation where there is where there is no leadership, the companies just kind of do what they want to do willy-nilly. That's amazing. And I guess we just never really think about it, too. Yeah, well, like, and it's just confusing, even with this GDPR rollout. You know how everyone's been getting these emails about your privacy and your data. I got one from NPR this week, insanely <laughs> enough. But they've come from all over. The thing with the emails is that like they're only like really legally binding in Europe because the GDPR rules only apply in Europe. They're sending you these emails in the U.S. kind of as a formality. But wow. it, it, it's not right. binding. Facebook in America doesn't have to adhere to the same standards as they do in the EU. So even if you get the same email that that, that like the EU sent got over there, it's not the same for you. Right. It's just more confusing if that makes sense. Well, it doesn't make sense. It's more confusing. Well, it's, yeah, and it seems really, really wonky to have a patchwork of laws for an internet that's kind of the same no matter where you are on the planet. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. Exactly. So it's like... The more that I dig into this stuff, the more I am perplexed and confused <laughs> and dismayed. I want to tell you guys about my newest time-saving trick. And thanks for taking the time to listen, because I got my contact lens prescription renewed from my couch yesterday in under five minutes using an awesome new app called Simple Contacts. Simple Contacts lets you renew your prescription and reorder your brand of lenses from anywhere in minutes through an online self-guided vision test. Every test is designed and reviewed by doctors, so they are literally bringing the doctor's office to your home. Think of how much time you save compared to making an appointment, getting to the eye doctor, taking time off, parking, uh, parking in LA, right? Waka, waka, waka. But also parking in your city, because it's always hard. Anyway, the contact lens prices are unbeatable. The vision test is only $20, and shipping is free. You can't find a better spend for your money for this thing. Just remember, though, this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. It's something to add on. It's a way to get those contacts. The exam was very, very, very simple to do. I thought that would be hard to do without like that giant machine from the doctor, but they cross-checked what I've done with my full eye health exam, and it made it easy to take care of all the process that I need to then get contact lenses. I often wear glasses. I also often wear contact lenses, uh, especially when I'm doing certain comedy things or if I'm acting in a thing, you know, and it's a period when I couldn't have worn glasses. I need to be able to see so I can perform well and, like, not fall over stuff, you know? I use contacts to do it, and Simple Contacts is making that easier for me. They can make it easier for you, too, because our listeners can get $30 off their first Simple Contacts order. $30. That's money. Just go to simplecontacts.com slash cracked or enter the code cracked at checkout. Again, that's simplecontacts.com slash cracked or just enter code cracked at checkout for $30 off your contacts. So, like, the first problem is these private companies get to act as gatekeeper, which is raising really big questions about free speech on what is the public square that is the Internet. Right. Two, these companies, they ha they adhere to different rules in different parts of the world or they adhere to no rules at all. So it's even more confusing on top of perhaps being unfair. And then you see even after some companies make decisions about who gets to be on the platform, after it's all said and done, they regret it. 
so I mentioned Cloudflare earlier, right? They're yeah. the ones that took off the Daily Stormer from online. Uh, I asked Danielle Citrin how she how that all shook out ultimately, and she had a very interesting response. You know, after the Cloudflare removal of its services from Daily Stormer, um, Michael Prince, the CEO of Cloudflare, has since said, I'm never doing that again. I don't want to play God on the Internet. Really hoped his name was Jim Cloudflare. Uh, it's <laughs> right. pretty disappointing. It is very disappointing. <laughs> but like, you have this situation where these private companies have this power; they don't want to use it. Yeah. You have an, and then you have situations in Europe where the EU says, "Well, we're going to regulate stuff," but in actuality, all they're doing is saying to these private companies, "You have to regulate it." Like, right. I mean, like these governments are ceding even more power to companies like Facebook in those situations, and so like no one, no one's in charge. Or, yeah, or if anyone has any control over it, I said before I don't want it to be a very, very old senator. I also don't want it to be a 20-something guy who just, like, started a web hosting company to make money and ride a, like, funky scooter around his campus or whatever. Exactly. Like, that guy's probably not capable either. Yeah. And, now and I didn't vote for him. Yeah. The, the guy who, 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 like, rides that rentable motorized scooter around San Francisco, he's in charge of free speech on the Internet now. Oh, man. Right? Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and so a further layer of Complication that I want to introduce to you um, is that when it comes to these issues of speech and hate and who gets to be online, in America especially, there is no single clear definition of what hate speech even is. You can't do it. Like right. there's some protected speech and, and there's some regulation on violence that was motivated by hate, but the big courts that matter, they don't agree <laughs> on what hate speech is. <laughs> and I talked recently with the former head of the ACLU, and she basically said, hate speech is whatever you think you want it to be to advance your cause, which is depressing. But then yeah. I thought about it, kind of true. Imagine now we are saying the alt-right should be off the internet. They don't deserve to be there because they're nasty and vile and hateful. In the 1960s, the South deemed the message of civil rights activists as hate speech. In Canada, there was an, an instance in which, under Canadian hate speech laws, the written works of Bell Hooks, the <laughs> black liberal author, was banned. A lot of the folks wow. that I talked to about these big ideas of free speech and hate speech online, they said... Here's why you should defend the rights of the gab.ais and the rights of the Daily Stormers and the rights of the alt-rights and the Milos. They all said the same thing. If you're allowed to crack down on them today, who do we crack down on tomorrow? It could change. It could right. so easily change. Um, and that's and that can be a hard stance to stomach, especially now that we're the resistance after the election, or at least some people are. Because yeah. there was a story about... Washington, D.C., Metro Transit, they had a few different companies that were prevented from being able to put ads up, and the ACLU fought for them, and one of the advertisers was the publishers of Milo Yiannopoulos's book yeah. of hateful garbage, because it's also speech. Exactly. So that's what the ACLU protects, and yeah. people were like, but I, I just donated to you. I gave you money you. for resistance stuff, yeah. and they're like, no. <laughs> and this is the thing, you know, I was talking with this former ACLU head, and she said, her group has defended NAMBLA, the National Association of Man-Boy Love. They yeah. have defended neo-Nazis. They've defended the KKK. They say speech is speech is speech, and it has to be defended, and it has to be free regardless, no matter what. Right. So this woman, her name is Nadine Strassen. Uh, we talked for a long time, and she said, Sam, I really believe this. 
even as a Jew. She's like, there are people in her family that survived the Holocaust. And even she says the kind of hate speech that her ancestors experienced, it's legal because if you don't, if you crack down on that, what do you crack down on next? And that was an interesting stance for her to take, but it's what she said, you know? And so I got to thinking about all of these things, you know, free speech and how it works online and who owns the internet and who's in control and hate speech. And I was left not just dismayed, but uh, there was, it's like someone burst the balloon of my conception of the internet. Yeah. The way that I thought about it before was a, way too simple and way too Pollyanna. And it turns out the internet is not as free as I w- was hoping it was. <laughs> I think we've bought for the last 20 years this sort of techno-libertarian view that the internet is free and that disruption and innovation is good and that no one can sort of prevent the onward march of technology. Mm-hmm. And truth be told, there's a whole lot of transaction costs and control that we just don't realize is yeah. happening. Well, and, you know, this mythology of the free Internet, it is, yeah. in my opinion, uh, it is manufactured by really strong and powerful corporate interests. Totally. They want it's us like, to believe it's free absolutely. so we don't worry about it. Absolutely. And they're surveilling us 24-7 mm-hmm. and controlling what we say and do. Yeah. And they're, then the myth they propagate is almost the opposite. Like, you are free to be you and me, do whatever you want. It's you a know, lie. We are your gateway to freedom when it's like almost the, the irony is it's, the, it's a, such a myth. And if you peel behind the layers, we are in a land of total surveillance and control and not our control someone else, you know, the company. Exactly. Isn't that fun? Yeah, maybe, maybe there's a good side <laughs> to being watched all the time. I don't know. Perhaps. Surely perhaps. the device in my pocket tells them where I am in a good way. In a good way. Like, in surely. Way. <laughs> but it's just like, I like this whole new way of seeing the internet was like brought to me by this awful acrimonious conversation with Utsav, you know, at, yes. at gab.ai. And I thought back to my conversation with him and at first I was like, this guy and what he represents, I don't believe in it. It's bad. Sure. It was a bad interview. I don't want to deal with this anymore. But it's like from that one little kernel of truth that he had, a lot more came from it. And like, this is the thing with the alt-right. And this is the thing with a lot of people that I think are villainized uh, in certain pockets of the internet or the media today. Like, even a broken clock is right twice a day. On right. issues of internet freedom, maybe the alt-right is right. In spite of their hateful (laughs) speech, in spite of their vile nature, maybe they do have a point. Maybe they are right when they say it's not fair that these private companies have so much control over what is the public square. Yeah. And like when you see it that way, one, you see people can be offensive and still have a point. And two, what I realized in this whole thing is that like the Utsavs aren't going away. Like as much as the internet has tried to marginalize them, they get back in there. They find another roundabout way in. You know, they might not be as prominent as they were before Charlottesville or before the election, but they're still around. And, like, yeah. they believe it, you know? Yeah, that in a recent episode with Jason Bargin in particular, we talked a lot about how part of this alt-right uh, mythology and, like, self-conception is that they are censored and that they yeah. are being oppressed and, and kept true. down. <laughs> like, this is right. the thing. And, and if we censor true. them. Yes, 
you yes. know. <laughs> this is like they're true believers. There was this moment in my conversation with Utsaf that like really confirmed to me how serious he takes this. Um, he's an immigrant. He's a person of color. And I brought up to him this idea that like maybe he shouldn't be supporting a platform that hosts speech that is just like so racially insensitive. And this is what he told me. People know who you are on yes. the site. Mm-hmm. And I did some searching of where your name pops up. There are users on Gab saying some really hateful things about you. Um, there was one comment I found. I'm not going to name the user, but he wrote, Street shitter definition, a dirty Indian Jew-loving nigger named Utsaf Zanduja, also referred as at you. That must hurt. No. It doesn't. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt because I know what suffering is really about. As somebody who's been a journalist, has traveled the world extensively, I've seen what suffering really is about. Seeing your friends die in your arms, seeing a lot of violence in your life in regards to a lot of the horrendous things that happen to people covering the news, seeing people um, essentially having to work their ways up uh, from poverty to you know, middle class, someone like myself, you know, I know what suffering really is about. Words is not suffering. Words is simply letters on a screen. Letters on a screen. I was. It was like, when he said that, it was like, yeah, it's letters on a screen, but like, it's so much more than letters on a screen. Yeah, all, all these things they say, like, they tend to start from some kind of kernel of truth. Well, not even all the things they say start from that. But then they, they just go so warped past that in a way that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And the one thing that I still think, going back over this tape a few months past that interview, yeah, he's beliefs. He's committed. Nothing you can say to him is going to dissuade him of these points of views. And that's where the alt-right is right now. Like... Wow. None of these gatekeepers are going to, like, it only makes them stronger. None of this censorship will end them. It'll only make them more committed to the cause. And so all of these issues I brought up, all of these fights over private ownership of public space and and what it means to have free speech online, these fights aren't over because the alt-right will keep fighting. Right. And the, and I guess the counter is to keep talking and keep saying things that uh, debunk, I think, a lot of what they're into. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, as we look at these, it seems like they need certain infrastructure to exist on the internet. They need yes. a hosting service. They need... Um, web security. Web security. They need to show up in Google searches. They yeah. need to ha- be on social media platforms where they can reach people and convert them. Yeah. They need this stuff. And even like, and one thing, there's um, a site that popped up when the site Patreon, which is a regular site, kicked off a lot of white nationalists. There's a Hatreon now, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's called Hatreon, which you would think means they have something to do with hate. Yeah. And uh, maybe they do. Yeah. And uh, But among many infrastructure things a service like that needs is they need to be able to work with payment services. And, and those are denying them now. Exactly. Yeah. And like major credit card companies are dumping them. But even this Utsav example, he's a very interesting person to me because I guess he must believe in it because I wonder how these sites find like coders, engineers, because they interviewed the person running Hatreon and he said, he said something along the lines of, it's kind of hard for us to find 10x engineers, which is a Silicon Valley term for an engineer who's 10 times more productive than the average engineer and like a superstar. Like, like, it seems like there are all these infrastructural steps they have to do if they want to build their entire own internet. Exactly. And it's probably hard when your ideology is hatred. Exactly. (laughs) And like, as hard as it is, though, 
they're going to keep at it. Yeah. And I think the questions they raise, in spite of how vile they can be, are actually serious, viable questions. Like, they should make us think about the freedom of the internet. Utsav yeah. has a point. I guess that's what I got from this whole thing. <laughs> like, Utsav has a point. When, and is, is part of the way he has a point that we have just always overestimated how free the internet is and how great the internet is yeah. and how much it can do for us? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, we think of the internet as this, like, open forest to free for all of us to roam through. Like, in actuality, it's like... Not even a mall, maybe like a series of gated communities. <laughs> like, yeah. There are people who have the locks at every part, at, at every stop, at every house. Someone can let you in or out or keep you out. Right. And we don't think about that enough. And either we make the internet that truly free and open forest, or we acknowledge that it's a series of gated communities. Yeah. Yeah, because even when we were talking about Airbnb before, that's a service that I've done material on Cracked about how that is like not the best company in a lot of ways. No. Like, I, I, like I think they're raising rents globally. They don't really have a lot of regulations. Like their business model, they kind of figured out that they could just do hotels without regulations. Oh, yeah. and, and there's like a lot of issues with oh, that. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, Airbnb is one of these companies that kicked off the alt-right after Charlottesville. They have a race problem themselves. There are so many yeah. cases and accusations of... Airbnb renters not renting to people of color. Like, right. <laughs> so, like, what makes Airbnb the proper arbiter of what is or isn't hatred given the problems that they have? I mean, there's right. so many questions. Like, who the hell should be in charge of the internet? So, yeah, this is one of those stories where it's like I kept digging and kept digging and kept digging and only got more depressed the further I got. I really do think one way we can handle this better is if we just start having a negative view of the entire internet. You shouldn't trust it. Like, yeah, don't trust the internet. Don't trust social media. Yeah. Don't trust it. It's not what you think it is. I feel so, I, like, I feel like I've become a conspiracy theorist over the course of reporting this <laughs> stuff out, but like, seriously, don't trust it. When it also, and there are all kinds of, uh, we've talked about a few of these negative sites and services, but there is like a whole ecosystem of yeah. them that exists. Like there's Hatreon, or one called Goy Fund Me. Or, Goy Fund Me? Right, which is... Like uh, no Jews allowed? Exactly. Oh, goodness. Uh, and uh, there's also a couple others called like Counter Fund. There's one called We Search R that was started by Chuck Johnson, and now the Southern Poverty Law Center says it's a white nationalist hate right. site. They're all just like crowdfunding sites. Yeah. There's I use Reddit a lot, and mm -hmm. suddenly there were a lot of posts about moving to Vote, which was a... It's called Vote? It's called V-O-A-T. It's pronounced oh. Vote. And it's because they felt that, and I know it sounds crazy, they felt that Reddit did not have enough opportunities for... For hate. Right. Which, I think Reddit's <laughs> full of that stuff. <laughs> it's kind of there. That's uh, the thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I, like, I try to take heart in that all of these different sites seem to be struggling to build a user base. Right? Like, yes. doesn't, it seems like everybody who's on Gab found it through being on Facebook or Twitter first. Exactly. And otherwise, they really don't have exactly. a lot of reach. Yeah. And I mean, like... Maybe that is a certain kind of freedom. Maybe to say to some of these spewers of so, quote-unquote hate speech, you can't be on the front page of the internet, but you can find a workaround and a roundabout and be over there. Yeah. Maybe that's fair enough. But I don't know if I agree. Because what if the country's mood shifts and two or three years from now, Black Lives Matter is thought to be hate speech? Mm. Are we as comfortable with them being marginalized in the same way? Some people already right. call them a 
Yeah, there's group. corners of the internet where people shout that yeah. already. Yeah. yeah. Like, those are the questions, I think, that are raised by the Utsavs of, of the world. I'm also curious about these. It seems like the vast majority of them started or really grew after Donald Trump was already the president. And whether or not he's their guy, they seem to think he is, a lot of them. Yeah. And, like, I, I don't know where they keep getting the feeling of oppression, I guess, other than just these services kicking them off. Yeah. Uh, these mainstream I mean, ones. They they get more press attention than ever before. Yeah. The candidate that they like is in the White House. Right. Companies like Gab have a lot of money in like venture capital. People are investing in these sites, some of them. Oh, so yeah, they're not victims. But I think this victim mentality and this victim rhetoric is something that like all of America is doing right now. Everyone sure. likes being a victim in some way or another. It's just like the moment we find ourselves in. So I don't think that they're unique. It is a good way to build support. I'm what? a victim. Give me some money. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, may, and maybe a term I should be using is underdog or something. Yes. Because we, we've yes. done a lot on, on Cracked also about how the major narratives of all our entertainment, like, say, Star Wars. Like, Star Wars A New Hope is about an underdog farmer. It's like, that's not blowing underdog up anymore. The Death Star. <laughs> that's not underdog. Like, Star Wars is the big, like, all of Star Wars is just, like, the richest thing ever at this point. But they, like, we all want to be Luke Skywalker yeah. on the farm staring at the suns, like, what if I change the world, you know? Exactly. So I, maybe they've just adopted that narrative for themselves on their frog Twitter equivalent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's like, if you have the technological wherewithal and support to start to build your own alternatives to Airbnbs and to Facebooks, you're probably already pretty privileged. If you run in the kind of circles yeah. where you can have engineers write code for a new site for you or get VC companies to give you investment funding, you're already pretty privileged. You're already doing okay. You're not an <laughs> underdog. You're not a victim. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe a solution is to convince these people that they are mainstream, like they are, because then they're not cool anymore or victims anymore. Exactly. Or, like there was a there was a New York Times editorial recently about the concept of the intellectual dark web, and huh. as it was spreading oh, around that, all these people, that Barry Weiss article. Yeah, I saw the hate tweets about it. <laughs> yeah, and and because the thing is, uh, the premise of the article was like, oh, these people are are some sort of quote unquote dark web. Even though, like, if you know about the internet, the actual dark web, you need like a lot of savvy to even find it. Yeah. It's very very hard to get to. Yeah. But like the so called intellectual dark web is writing New York Times editorials exactly and, and getting spots on their editorial board. Like yeah, and like going on HBO. Uh, the story mentioned that uh, Jordan Peterson and two other people from it are doing a show at the O2 Arena in London. It seats 20,000 people. Oh like, they're not they're not underground. Yeah, they're not. <laughs> and then it's like, part of it is if they had to give up the shtick of underground and underdog, yeah. are they as interesting? Right, right. They're not. Like, what's compelling about Gab.ai if all they are is just, like, nasty rhetoric and not these champion underdog champions of free speech and, and, and people who are oppressed and trying to fight for their freedoms. Once you lose that, it's just, like, bad language. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is very elementary. <laughs> yeah. They I almost guess... need the struggle to survive. Right, because when, when they are on Twitter, they're fighting all the time. Mm -hmm. It's all kinds of argument. They like, have a fight. I haven't spent uh, much time, if any, on Gab. I've just read about it. But, like, 
when people are on Gab, are they like, like, who are they yelling at? Like, it's just them talking to each other, right? There's yelling no about the system fight. and the man and the this. It's just the, outward. Yeah, <laughs> outward. It's all outward. Gab is funny, though, because I signed up for it. And I'm still, I guess, officially on it. But every now and then someone will follow me. I haven't posted a thing. But I'll get a little email saying, right. this person followed you. And I'm like, oh, man, I should do something about that. Because <laughs> oh, no. at some point they're going to come after me. Like they'll bother you on the service or something? I don't or know. I'm always worried about getting doxxed. Oh, I, I guess we all should, huh? It's well, a thing. Knock on wood. Right. <laughs> yeah, because I, when I was reading about it, there was this Vice UK reporter. His name's Tom Bennett. He asked Gab's team. He said, hey, I have a conception that Gab is just these like bloodthirsty alt-right people. Send, send me some accounts that aren't. Like show me some people <laughs> yeah. that are. Like, yeah. it, like I guess you don't have to take the time, but show me. Mm-hmm. And they sent him five accounts and... Not only were a couple of them still like tied to German far right parties and stuff, mm-hmm. but also one of them was Michael Edison Hayden, who is a Newsweek journalist whose beat is this stuff. Like, wow, he's like you. He was on there to report on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, and they were like, "See, we have regular reporters." No, <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Not it's, at all. He's doing his job. Yeah, and hates you. <laughs> yeah, not at all. What was really interesting to me, though, it's like talking about these alt right groups and these fringe groups and this gab about AI stuff and questions of internet. Yeah, uh, the internet is just the new space for these age old arguments. Yeah, how much yeah. how much speech and how much freedom of speech do we as a society want to protect? That is like a central question to like who we are as Americans and who we are as global citizens. And now it just happens on the internet with these private companies. But the question isn't new. The question's not new. Like Yeah, I suppose not. There's always gonna be people that say nasty shit. Do we allow it? Right. And yeah. how? You know? And I'm I'm kind of like after this rabbit hole I've gone down I'm kind of like allow it freedom freedom, <laughs> but I'm sure if I got accosted on Gab at AI one day I'd say shut it down. <laughs> yeah, is there? I wonder if there's any way to fully depersonalize looking at it. I, I suppose certain folks like the ACLU people you've talked to are good at that. Like yeah. they're good at it's just the principle. That's exactly. It. But maybe maybe we all have to go like meditate a bunch or something. I don't I don't know how we just see it from a god's eye view completely. It's hard because it's all personal. Yeah, yeah, it's all personal. Basically, I have no big conclusions or solutions. For it. <laughs> Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Sam Sanders for exploring our world with me. And hey, you, why don't you dive into our food notes where you'll find links about everything we talked about today. To be very clear, we're not promo-linking the white supremacist shadow internet sites. We are linking coverage of their impact on society. If you want to go find them, that's your deal. You will also find stories about a sub-phenomenon here, which is that Twitter and YouTube and CNN.com and more mainstream platforms and sites are often bending over backwards to give racist activists exactly what those racist activists demand of them. Like, we're talking about a lot of people getting kicked off. We also could highlight the sites that are letting this go or caving into it or who are meeting a constitutional liberty kind of motivated reason to let them go. And that's fascinating to me, too. That's all in there. And, of course, we're linking to Sam Sanders' amazing podcast, It's Been a Minute. Find it wherever you get shows, and it's it's a really good time. As he said, there's two episodes each week, and it's a very different vibe each week. And either way, I think you're going to love it. In other news, the Cracked Podcast is live at UCB Sunset. That's this coming Saturday, June 9th. 
with a show all about amazing performances by actors who weren't acting. I'm so glad to be joined by Dan Hopper, Molly Lambert, and Danny Fernandez on that episode. Tickets are still on sale. There's a few left to go. Grab them and make us part of your weekend. I think it's going to be a great time. Also, if you're coming to that event on June 9th, here's a fun thing where you can get like extra me. I wrote a script for a TV pilot and it's going to get a table reading at UCB's other stage across the building at sunset. It's called the Inner Sanctum Stage. And I just want people to hear it. I think it's going to be a really good time. We've got amazing people performing it. And that is 530 Inner Sanctum Stage, June 9th. UCB Inner Sanctum, you can like discover some script writing by me. You've probably seen some of it on Crack's YouTube channel or just in the world if you (laughs) happen to be into it. And there's going to be more there. So, hey, what a fun hang. Let's do that. And as far as this episode goes, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the one and only Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by the multi-talented Sam Sanders because, yeah, he's that entertaining while he's running a board. Isn't that neat? And we also thank Sam for lending us his space at the NPR West Studios in Culver City, California. And after that, today's episode was edited by the also multi-talented Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A thing we should cover on the show sometime, you know? Maybe, maybe we'll bring it up sometime. You can find my Twitter account, at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I am very happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.